the year 1953. A plane touches down at Smithy's Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersom and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on The Group and their song, Woman You're Breaking Me. Our special guest is former member of The Group and one of Australia's greatest songwriters, Brian Cadd. was born in Perth in 1946. His mum and dad were renowned tennis players with both winning Western Australian state titles. They had hoped that young Brian would continue on the family tradition. Thankfully for generations of Aussie music fans, Brian chose piano over tennis, and one of our greatest songwriters was now on his way. In the future, some all-time classic tunes would flow from his mind. However, in true rock and roll style, initially it all started out being about a girl. When I started to pick... um uh, piano lessons, it was all about them um, being terribly disappointed, you know, because I wasn't going to follow in the tradition of them. But from my point of view, I took piano lessons because I was madly in love with this. I mean, you know, I was very young, nine or something, ten. But I was madly in love. Oh, no, I would have been a bit older. I was madly in love with this chick called Cheryl, and I could never, I was too shy to talk to her or anything. But I figured out that the, that the half hour lesson that was offered to me was directly after hers on Thursday or whenever it was. So I took it because for, for these few fabulous minutes every Thursday, we were in the same room together. That's absolutely the truth. <laughs> Brian was naturally drawn to music and the piano was the perfect outlet for his growing curiosity. Back in those days, a lot of houses had, a lot of homes had, um, you know, old, old upright pianos in the hallway or in the living room, and no one much ever played them. But they were sort of from previous generations, and we had one. And apparently, when I was quite young, I was able to sit there and pick out little tunes—not my tunes, but tunes that were on the radio or people were singing. And so, I suppose, in a way even though I, I didn't really acknowledge it until, you know, when I finally admitted that I was going to take lessons, I really probably was able to to play by ear from a fairly early age. I just didn't concentrate on it because it wasn't on my radar. You know, the idea of playing piano was absolutely lunacy. You know, who would do that? What young red-blooded Australian male from Perth would ever do that? It turns out it worked out right in the end. As a recording act, the group had two distinct periods featuring different members. The group Mark I was a folk band and spanned 1964 to 66, 
While the group Mark II, featuring Brian Cadd, had a pop rock sound. Initially formed in Melbourne as the Wesley Trio in 1964, the trio comprised vocalist Peter McKeady, Max Ross on bass, and drummer Richard Wright. The boys attended the prestigious Wesley College and played mainly folk and novelty songs. As the Wesley Trio, they signed with CBS Records and released a single and EP. By the end of 1964, they had changed their name to the group. After several months, they recruited the recently arrived English guitarist Peter Bruce. There's always been a bit of conjecture about Peter Bruce's UK musical pedigree, and the newly renamed band The Group used his publicity to their advantage. Bruce had grown up as a childhood friend with Dave Clark of the Dave Clark Five fame. The Dave Clark Five had many international hits, including one of their best-known songs, Glad All Over. It was originally reported that Bruce was previously guitarist with Dave Clark, but this wasn't correct. Peter had been a member of a band that often supported the Dave Clark Five at gigs, but he was never an official member of this famous band. Still, this sort of publicity certainly didn't hurt the group's street cred. The group's debut single was one of their own original songs, Old Hound Dog, and it was released in December 1965. The song would go on to become a national top 10 hit, eventually reaching number 7 on the charts. the success of Old Hound Dog, the group's next single was Best in Africa. Released in February 1966, it became another top 10 hit for the band, making it to number 9 on the Australian charts. I went to a market show to sell your goods, that's the place to go. I was walking through one day, a man had his fruit on display. He's got the biggest and the best in Africa. Melon right, he said, aha, uh-huh, I got the biggest in Africa. 
The group's run of hit records continued, and they would make it 3 from 3 with the release of I'm Satisfied in June 1966. While it wasn't as successful as their first two singles, I'm Satisfied reached number 21 on the national charts, and it was still a top 10 hit in their hometown of Melbourne. The group were popular on the live circuit, and apart from their hit singles, they recorded two full-length albums over a relatively short period of time. Both albums were made up of a mix of original and cover songs, and they sold well, especially in Victoria. The band's fourth single, Empty Words, saw their national chart success come to an end. Despite the single again selling well in Melbourne, it didn't have the cut-through of their previous singles, and it failed to chart nationally. You're holding my hand, you say love is grand, you say that it but I see through you, you're lonely and blue All that you want is a friend You think I believe those words that deceive You know that you're leading me on I'll leave you right now, forget you somehow Then how you feel when I'm gone The group's future looked to be in doubt in 1966, when the two Peters left the band in quick succession. Max Ross and Richard Wright decided to forge on, and set about recruiting some new members into one of Melbourne's most popular bands of the time. Their recruitment drive turned out to be a very successful one indeed, with guitarist John Mudie, vocalist Ronnie Charles and Brian Cadd signing on to become bona fide members of the group. Prior to joining the group, both Brian Cadd and Ronnie Charles were in a band in Melbourne called the Jackson Kings. They had some minor success with their version of a Herbie Hancock song, Watermelon Man. This song was produced by Sven Lebeck, who we last heard about in the Atlantic's Bombora episode. The Jackson Kings released the song through the same label that the group was signed to, CBS Records. Oh 
Despite gaining some attention with the Jackson Kings, for Brian it wasn't a tough decision to join the group. I'd been in bands for ages. I finally got to Melbourne when I was about 16 or so, maybe a bit older. And uh, I went through a bunch of bands, including trad jazz bands and stuff, which was a real sort of love of mine back then. And uh, and then I got into little local rock bands. And we mostly didn't play anywhere. We just rehearsed, you know, probably really badly, but we sort of felt we were in a band. And we did a couple of gigs. I, I was in a band called The Castaways, and we did some local, you know, Friday night dance, bottom of the bill and on the top of the bill was a band called the Jackson Kings and they saw me and Ronnie playing and they poached us. No, they saw me playing and they stole me from that band and they stole Ronnie from some other band, Ronnie Charles. So we are in the Jackson Kings for quite a while. In fact, we got signed to CBS um, and on the same label was a group called The Group. And so, the, you know, in their genius, the record label said, well, you can go out and support the group because you're on the same level. And the group, got, we got to know them, you know, and then two of their members left for England and instead of breaking the group up, they just said to Ronnie and me, why don't you join us? And we did and that was sort of the beginning. And I, they had a deal, though, I couldn't do it part-time, you know, I couldn't work and, and just be in the band like I had been. I had to actually commit to full-time, which is pretty scary. And I've got to say, my parents supported me, you know, through the early period until we made some real money. The change in personnel also saw a change in the musical direction for the group. They now adopted a grittier pop-infused sound. The first release from the new lineup was Sorry, and it made it to number 34, although it was a top 10 hit in Melbourne. At this stage, Brian didn't consider himself to be a songwriter. He was merely content to now be a member of one of Melbourne's most popular bands. His turn at writing hit records would come somewhat unexpectedly. Oh, it's a ridiculous story, really. I, I was, um, we were only just in the band, and they had a couple of songwriters already in the band. And so CBS said, you know, we're going to come down, we're sending a producer down in two weeks, and... Uh, you know, so you got to write, because they'd already had a bit of a history with their own songs. So they said, we need you to write a bunch of songs and you'll come down and I'll pick the next single and, and record it. 
So they're writing away and nobody sort of asked me or asked the drummer. You know, we weren't were songwriters or anything. But we got together anyway and we just sort of started to fool around, not having a clue what we were doing. And uh, he started a little drum feel and I sort of started a few chords and we liked that. So we kept going and we had a lot of fun. Over a couple of days we finished the song and we didn't ever think that we'd ever play it to anyone. It was just sort of a fun thing, just, you know, why can't we? Let's see if we can write one. Anyway, when it came to the, this is true, when it came to the actual meeting with the A&R guy, the A&R guy said, okay, everybody let's play the songs and some people were playing different songs. And, and he, you know, he just looked at us and he said, have any, either of you got a song? I said, we've got a song together. And he said, oh, we'll play it. So we played it. And he said, that's a single. That's the one, you know, which that was such a shock to us because we never even thought we'd ever get to play it to anyone. And so we went in and recorded the song and it was, a bit, as you say, it was a big hit. And it was the first song I ever wrote. So I was sitting there with a top ten record going, how long's this been going on, you know? This is fabulous. This is easy. And it took me a while to get another one, which proves that it wasn't very easy as it turned out. But I was very lucky. I think we just had to. Hit the right, hit the right groove, and we've said the right things in the song. And and with, in all due fairness, I think a lot of the reason it was a hit was because the singer Ronnie Charles was a hell of a singer, a really great singer, and he nailed it, just nailed it. And so it, you know, it was a very simple nursery rhyme kind of song, but he just nailed it, and all the little girls liked him, and so off it went. When Woman You're Breaking Me was released in May 1967, it reached number six on the Australian charts and the single stayed in the charts for 13 weeks. The evolution of the keyboards as an instrument took off in the early 1960s. Now when playing live gigs, finally the piano player could be heard. Yeah, uh, my father, I conned my father into getting me a Capri organ, which was not like the really big rock bands. They had Farfises and or, you know, all those Wurlitzers and all those fabulous keyboards. They were all, you know, way too much money. And there was this little Italian job, you know, it wasn't even a full-length keyboard. And it only had a couple of little sounds on it. But there were so few keyboard players around at the time that just simply because I played it, you know, everyone just naturally assumed that I was actually good at it, which I don't think I was. But, um, you know, that sort of started the the whole thing for me and and I'm so glad that that happened right then because up until that point of time, piano players played actual pianos. They didn't drag them along to the gig, but if you did a you know, club, there'd normally be a piano there. You know, they all had them. And they used to take the front of the piano off and, you know, put a microphone in it. And you couldn't really hear most of what you played when the guitar player started playing, but you could hear the top end. Which is why Little Richard, uh, Little Richard and, and, um, Jerry Lee Lewis had all those really, really high eighth notes in their rock records because they were basically the only notes that the audience could hear. And so when these electronic, you know, organs came on, it was sensational because we could put them through an amp, you know, and we could make them as loud as the guitar players, which really annoyed them. <laughs> The group were one of the most popular bands of their time. They wrote catchy songs and were one of the best live bands in the country. 
We mentioned the Holies Battle of the Sounds in the Twilights episode. The group took out this event in 1967, performing a song co-written by Brian and Max when I was six years old. The song would go on to be recorded in the UK by Manfred Mann's lead singer Paul Jones. It was also recorded in Australia by Ronnie Burns and it reached number 22 on the national charts. Part of the prize for winning the Holy's Battle of the Sounds was a trip to London for the group to record. They headed off to the UK, although their travel arrangements weren't exactly first class. Oh yeah, we, I mean we played all over Australia but never anywhere, we never, no one had ever left, you know, never left Australia. And the only way you could get there back in the day was by ship and that was the prize you won. And it was, ours was on the Castle Felici, which is, we didn't know at the time, but it was heading back to England and then on to Italy where it was going to be scrapped because it was so old. And we didn't know that, which we, I'm glad we didn't know that. Um, and didn't have any stabilizers. So going around the Cape, going around the Cape of Good Hope was terrifying, you know. Uh, we were all over the place. But in actual fact, we were so young, really. We, we, it didn't really occur to us that we could get into trouble. There wasn't all that much that could go wrong. In actual fact, there were probably lots of things that could have gone wrong, you know, when you think about it. We were, we were on a ship for six weeks um, and then we got to London and we were just us. And we were, I mean, the oldest of us was only about 23 or 24 or something. Um, and we were living in this place, great place as it turns out. Um, but we didn't have a clue what was going on. We didn't have a clue. So everything was like magical. As it turned out, the record label executives in London had no interest in furthering the band's songwriting credentials and had decided the group were to record an Italian ballad that they translated into English, What's the Good of Goodbye? Worse still, these executives had decided that not all members of the band were required in the studio. This record was probably doomed to fail from the start. Unfortunately, this bizarre recording session would ultimately do irreparable damage to the long-term harmony of the band. When we finally got to go in the studio and record, even though it was dreadful and we were put in a studio with not the band, just a whole lot of other players, and, and they made us do this Italian ballad, only it was translated into English, and that was what they wanted us to do as a single, you know, and we said, well, you know, but we came all the way from Australia and we've got all this this whole bag full of songs we want to do. And they said, well, that's terrific. And when you do an album, you can put them on the album, but we think this is a hit, so we want you to do that. And, of course, right there, in a way, was when the band broke up. We kept going for a while and, and we toured all over England and we used to get great reaction when we played. But when the single came out, of course, it had nothing to do with us. And it was embarrassing, really. And so we sort of gave up. And by the end of that, we were there for 
maybe a year and a half, a bit more. And it just seemed like, you know, we'd tried so hard and, and gone all this far and we really weren't getting anywhere. And, and the promoters in Australia were calling us all the time and saying, come on, you got to get back to Australia. There's another tour. There's this tour. There's that thing. And Warner Brothers in Australia wanted to sign us to an Australian-New Zealand deal. And so in the end, we just came home. And and I don't know that we really missed the step, to be honest. I think we just went on in Australia doing what we'd probably always done. And that was when we did um, that was when we did such a lovely way. And of course, that gave us another whole maybe nine months or a year on the road. Um, and we were making good money, and the record had sold, and you know it was all looking good. The group returned to Australia in 1968 and they hit the ground running. The band's next single was Such a Lovely Way and it was another top 20 record for the group. Despite the disappointment of the London trip, the band now had another hit on their hands. Such a Lovely Way was released in February 1969 and reached number 12 on the national charts. Now I um, was writing with Max Ross in the band and um, he was quite a seasoned songwriter. And this, we got together and wrote a bunch of songs for the next single, and that one just that one just fell out. It was just one that was quite obviously the single out of the bunch. And you know, in that song, in that record at least, amazing credit must go to the drummer Richard Wright, who I'd written "When You Break Me," with. Um, and he started with that kind of almost Latin bossa nova rumba kind of feel and the song built from there and and really it was sort of guitars and organ which were straight you know rock and roll instruments but over a kind of a <laughs> rumba beat if you like and it just was so unusual that when it came on the radio people naturally listened to it because it wasn't like anything that was on the radio and we were very lucky in that sense it was a good hook and people sang along with it and everything. But I think the fact that it was it didn't sound like anything else made it stand out. Wanting you is so too much, just holding on 
as a songwriter who would go on to write deep emotional songs such as Little Ray of Sunshine. The Little Ray of Sunshine has come into the world. The Little Ray of Sunshine in the shape of a girl. Brian describes his earlier writing efforts as songs for the time. Yeah, they, listen, they weren't exactly, you know, intellectual challenges. I mean, they were like nursery rhymes. You know, I love you and you love me and, you know, let's go and have a drink and have a dance. You know, it was like there was no big thoughts in any of these songs. It was mostly what we played and the way the song travelled through the record, you know, it was exciting and kids could, you know, dance to it. All you really needed in it was... And I'm not sort of putting us all down for that because that was just about as far as, with the exception of the Beatles, everyone else was still writing these fairly simple pop songs, you know. And the, the concentration was on the chorus. If you got a hell of a chorus, it didn't actually mean much what was said in the verses. And I'm probably ashamed to admit this, but, but in Woman You're Breaking Me and in Such a Lovely Way, the words are irrelevant, you know. I mean, they don't, in fact, in some parts of them, they don't actually make a lot of sense. And it's not just us that were doing that. Everyone was doing that, you know. I mean, the masters had hits at the same time and a lot of those words were impossible to figure out. Um, so the emphasis, in answer to the question, the emphasis was very much on the music and getting people up and rocking and, and, and the, you know, giving the lead singer enough to sing so he looked fabulous and sounded fabulous. That was how we all approached songwriting back then. Nobody ever wrote a Bob Dylan kind of song because we weren't that deep. We didn't have much to say. But it worked for the time. Prior to breaking up, the group provided the instrumental backing to Russell Morris's all-time classic, The Real Thing, with Ronnie Charles also providing backing vocals. Molly Meldrum was a fan of the group and would sometimes act as an unofficial roadie for the band. He'd often come up with suggestions and one was for Brian to change his last name from Cad to Kane. As this interview is with Brian Cad rather than Brian Kane, it's pretty obvious as to what surname went out in the end. It turns out Molly was no match for Brian's mum. Oh yeah, not as, not as glad as my mother was. I had to change it because my mother refused. She just cut me out. She cut me out of the family. I was thrown out. It was all brushed on. Um, but in a way, I think I was kind of lucky because it's just it's such an unusual name. <clears throat> you don't get a lot of us, whereas there are a lot of canes. You know, there's a lot of a lot of those kind of rock names and a lot of people who do. And that was the reason he did it. He said, well, you know what Molly's like. Well, the first thing we're going to do, dear, is we're going to, we're going to change your name. And he happened to be looking at some looking at some um, film mag or something that was on the table. And Michael Caine was really hot at that time. 
So he said, Nick, you're going to be Brian Kane. And I didn't really have any choice because the Ghost Said article came out and he just changed it. It wasn't anything we agreed on. He just changed it. My mother clocked off. I was out of the will. I was out of the house. I was out. If she could have taken my car off me, she would have. You know, it was like, it was just, you know. And I, I understand that it was a terrible thing to do. But at the time, considering how the lunacy that our industry was going through, I don't suppose it really mattered that much. People were changing their name all over the place. But in her view, that wasn't a good enough reason. As Brian mentioned, the group eventually broke up at the end of 1969. In all, the group released 11 singles, three EPs, and three full-length albums. Brian and Don Mudie would go on to form Axiom. Check out one of our early episodes on Axiom's classic song, Little Ray of Sunshine. Okay, that's enough of the talk. Here's Woman You're Breaking Me by the group. Thanks for listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. Thanks to Brian for your time, and thanks to the group for the music. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! I've got something to tell you About a place that 
Just stop.